Good morning, everyone. Once again, hey, before we get into the message today, I just want to give a little follow-up announcement uh, regarding this uh, women's Christmas thing. You know, they make it sound all nice, but I, I just want to say that we've been talking about Ephesians, walking in the way of love. So it's relational. It's how we interact with one another. And the truth is that during that two-hour window, all those rules get thrown out the door. I mean, what they forgot to mention is you probably should wear running shoes and possibly a crash helmet to this event. And the other thing is, Donna mentioned the thing about you have to bring an ornament, not at some other decoration. That has happened in the past. People inadvertently brought something that was not an ornament, and they actually get mocked for it. So, I mean, it's just, it's just they just throw everything out the window. Thank you, sir. You guys are awesome. Uh, but I guess it's fun. I don't know. I've never been. I've been banned. I'm not allowed. Men are not allowed in the room, in the building, or I think in the neighborhood during that time. So whatever. So with that, we'll continue with Ephesians. Walking uh, in the way of love. Ephesians really uh, just overview, you know, kind of follow up real quick. The first half of the book, Paul talks about our, uh, who we are in Christ and our identity in Him and the way that, that transformation takes place internally. And then he shifts uh, pretty strongly in the last half of the book is the outworking of that transformation. And he really, really deals with uh, uh, very much with our behavior and especially our interactions with one another. It's a profound, I think, and powerful book. I've, I think I told you at the beginning, I've said in the past, and I don't know if this is really totally true, but it's probably my favorite book. Uh, it's hard to have a favorite book of the Bible, but I really do enjoy Ephesians. Last week, we looked at some red flags, warnings about behaviors that would ultimately be disruptive to our relationship with Christ and with others, and we framed that in the, in the light of thanksgiving. Uh, in the middle of all these sort of things not to do, Paul says, but rather thanksgiving. And uh, I sort of concluded by saying that in many ways, we can put a lot of energy an effort into trying not to do things we're not supposed to do, but sometimes it's easier just to be thankful in our hearts and allow those things just to fall by the wayside. So uh, that was that. This morning, we're going to continue uh, with chapter 5. We're going to wrap up Ephesians uh, today, and then next Sunday, we will finish the book of Ephesians, and we'll also go into uh, our Advent celebration next week. So that'll, that'll be a lot of fun. You're going to want to be here for that. Um, today's section deals with uh, husband-wife relationships. Who, 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 who said that? It's Kevin. Uh, here's the thing. I'm going to say off the top, I'm going to put a disclaimer out there. This is a difficult passage, and it's difficult for a couple reasons. One, one is, you will see as we go that there are some uh, translation and kind of uh, linguistic kind of challenges in this passage. So that's one reason it's tough. The second reason, though, and the one that makes it really more difficult, I believe, is that uh, this particular passage carries with it a lot of baggage. Uh, I think it is... No, I don't think. I know. It is one of the most misinterpreted and abused and twisted to mean what I want it to mean passages in the New Testament, maybe in the whole Bible certainly in the New Testament, and I believe historically women have been um, made to submit in 
some very unhealthy and unbiblical ways based on what the Bible says. Um, and and that, that makes it tough. So bear with me this morning, if you would. Uh, I'm going to do my very best to, to present what I believe to be an, an accurate and a, and a biblical perspective on uh, Ephesians 5. Uh, our title this morning is, As Christ Loved the Church. So let's uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your word. It's, uh, it's rich and it's full, and we ask that your word would penetrate our hearts today and that you would help each of us to embrace uh, what you have for us, that we might uh, walk in the way of love and uh, learn to love as you do. In your name we pray, amen. All right, this is Ephesians 5, uh, beginning in verse 21 and then continuing through the end of the chapter. And it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Boom. Then it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Um, begins in verse 21 with the phrase, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That phrase is not uh, directed exclusively to husbands and wives. It's really a, a, uh, a blanket statement given to all Christians in regard to uh, our behavior, our interaction, our responses to one another. It's a guideline for Christian relationship. We are to submit to one another. Now, uh, having said that, it doesn't exclude husbands and wives. It certainly does include them, but it's not limited to them. Okay, clarify that. Um, we'll talk about what it means to submit in a minute, but first I think, why? Why, why do we do that? Out of reverence for Christ. Um, we're going to do a, a little Greek today. I apologize to everyone except Brogan. He's with the kids, but Brogan always likes it when I do Greek. But we're going to look at about probably four or five words in Greek this morning because I think it's a, an important passage, and it's, you, you'll see that they're, I think they'll enlighten some things for us. Um, but the first one is the word reverence here. The Greek is phobos, and it means fear, literally fear. Uh, if, if you remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about a definition of humility, and we said that humility is a clear understanding of where I end and God begins. And when we think in light of that, it's, it, it, it causes us then to have a respect, a reverence, an awe, or even a fear of the Lord. And it's not a fear uh, like he's going to crush me any minute. It really is a fear of just understanding that 
you know, I, I am very limited in, in, in who I am, and God is unlimited in who He is. Uh, and so I want to then do what He wants me to do. And what He wants me to do is to uh, submit to you, and likewise, for you to submit to me. It's, it's a common and a mutual willingness to defer to one another in the name of Jesus. It's, and it really is a fundamental guideline for Christian behavior. Um, this was a, a radical, uh, out-of-the-box kind of thinking in the first century. Uh, Greek culture, Roman culture was very authoritative, very authoritarian, very dominant, uh, very powerful. And so when Paul says, uh, I want you to lay that aside, whatever authority, whatever power you might have over anyone else, lay that aside uh, and submit to one another, that was a radical, radical concept. The Greek word here translated submit is hypostaso. And it literally means to serve under or stand under, to place oneself under another person. An important dynamic related to that word, very important dynamic, is that it's a voluntary and willing thing that we do. So it's submission, biblically, is functional, not positional. So, so, so what I mean, by, I'm going to give you an illustration of that. Some people have a, a position or a title that gives them authority and power. Um, but what Paul is saying here is that it's not related to the position of authority a person holds, but it's related to who they are as a person. So, for example, uh, the vineyard community of churches, our, our governmental structure is set up in such a way that we have what are called regional overseers. And a regional overseer is kind of the pastor that's over the pastors in a region. And historically, in the past, I have been a, uh, had a regional overseer who was a person who had the title of overseer and was positionally above me, but frankly was not, uh, uh, in my estimation and, and also that of others, uh, a, a very good leader. And just some examples would be that this person really did kind of pride themselves on their position a little bit, but also was not very responsive to people, didn't, didn't call back or get back or check in or anything like that. Um, and so I did submit to his authority and leadership because structurally that's just what I was called to do. But it was hard to do that. I didn't really see him in that role. Now, conversely, and I'm going to use uh, my friend Steve as an example because many of you know Steve Fish, who is the pastor of Vancouver Vineyard. Uh, Steve is a dear friend of mine and it w is not my overseer, does not have any positional authority above me. And yet, he's someone that's the exact opposite of that. I look to him for leadership and guidance because I value his input in my life. And so I've submitted myself to Stephen. When I have questions about things, sometimes life things, sometimes pastoral things, just things, I will often call Stephen and go, hey, you know, can I talk to you for a minute? I, 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 I'm just curious about this. And I really, really value his input. So he has functional authority in my life that I've submitted to but not positional. So I, I hope that makes sense. And you can see that it really is a voluntary and a willing dynamic. It's never forced. Uh, in our life. We submit to one another 
I, I would say will, voluntarily, willingly, and joyfully. It really is joyful. It should be something that we do because it's a blessing to know that I have this person that I can look to. And, and, and that really is the dynamic that Paul's relating here through the word submit, the Greek word hupostasso. Um, again, first century, this is a radical concept. Um, slavery at the time was uh, legal and accepted in society. You know the story of Philemon and his runaway slave Onesimus, and uh, we, should, we should look at that in more detail, but uh, the short story is that Onesimus uh, stole something from his master and ran away. And uh, in running away, he ran into the Apostle Paul, who led him to Christ. And then after being converted, Paul said, now you're a different person, so you have to go back to the guy you ran away from and make it right. But in telling him to do that, Paul also wrote a letter and sent it ahead of him and said, hey, I'm sending this guy back to you, but I want you to receive him as a brother, not as a slave. And Paul also said, by the way, whatever he owes you, I'll pay for it, which is the way it should be. So I bring that story up somebody to say this, that in the culture of the day, women were really about half a step above slaves. They were basically owned by the men in their lives. They were uh, just culturally not allowed to work or to earn a living of any kind. So they were completely dependent upon men. Uh, as a young person, dependent upon their father, and then later in life, they w- and they would often be, frankly, sold into marriage. Uh, there would be a, you know, an exchange of, of money for the hand of the, the wife who would then become uh, you know, sort of dependent upon her husband and uh, there was really no other alternative available to her. With, uh, if a person was widowed or di- divorced or left their husband for some reason, um, to, to be honest, prostitution was really the only option to provide for themselves. That was, that was it. Uh, it was, so it was uh, societally uh, very much that the, the, the women were dependent completely upon the men. I read the other day, by the way, this is an interesting thing. Uh, In the United States of America today, 40% of all entrepreneurs are women. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. I actually was surprised a little bit. I kind of thought that might be even low. I would have thought maybe even more than that. Uh, But it's just, you know, you go girls, right? Um, Not the case in ancient Near East. Very, very, very male-dominant culture. We think we have a male-dominant culture today, much more so then. Men made all the decisions. Uh, the man decided what religion you would follow. So, for example, if a man converted to Christianity, the family was then required to convert to Christianity. So it's an interesting thing. You know, we read this story in Acts of the Philippian jailer, right? And he gets saved, and then it says he and his whole household came to Christ. And in our mind, we kind of picture they all, oh, you know, I want Jesus, I want Jesus, I want Jesus. But really, it probably wasn't like that. That probably was, is what happened in his heart, and then because he converted, his family converted with him. That's really probably much more realistic as to how that happened. And that was the case. Uh, men made those kinds of decisions for the family. Uh, if a child was born that was... Uh, sick or, 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 you know, had any issues or problems if a child was 
the wrong gender, the man would decide if that child lived or died. Do we keep this child or do we discard it? Uh, those were all things that the men decided. So when Paul says that we are to submit to one another, it really, really is a very, very radical concept uh, for people of the day. So verse 21 is an overriding kind of blanket statement for Christian ethics. We, we are to voluntarily, willingly, joyfully submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, and then the remainder of the chapter and then the first part of chapter 6 are really illustrations, specific illustrations of that dynamic. Um, before we... Oh. Yeah, I think I got it now. When you need it. Uh, before we... Oh, did I lose it completely? No? Okay. We'll just press on. Uh, I want to look at a couple other passages that I think relate to this. And I'll try to go fast, but bear with me. First one is in Peter. First Peter 2. It says... Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. Harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then he says, in the beginning of chapter 3, Wives, in the same way, in the same way he just described for slaves, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe in the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Okay, keep that in mind. And then I want to look at one more, uh, going back, back, back to Genesis chapter 3. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and painful labor, uh, with painful labor, you will give birth to children, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. All right. Tray tables up, seat backs forward, buckle up, helmets on. Uh, while Peter and Paul are saying... Very similar things in these two passages. They're saying very similar things. They're saying them for very different reasons. They have different intention. Okay? Peter's text that we, we just read has cultural connotations to it. And we know that it has cultural connotations for a couple reasons. One is, if you continue the passage around right after this, he continues to talk to the women and tells them, 
don't wear braided hair, don't wear gold, don't wear jewelry at church, you don't, don't do that. That was a cultural thing at the time. Today, if a, if a woman walks into church and her hair's all done nice or she has gold on her jewelry, we wouldn't think, oh, that's terrible, look at you. Um, so it has cultural connotations to it. And here's the thing. Peter recognizes in his passage the culture of the day, and he's appealing to both slaves and wives to submit themselves as Christians so that their witness might possibly win over their respective masters and or husbands to Christ. So he's making an accommodation of of the cultural norm with the intent of evangelism. So effectively, he's basically saying the same thing here that Paul says in Romans when he says, be all things to all men that you might win some. He's saying, submit to these situations, even if they're not, not great situations, because by your behavior, by being like Jesus, you might then win your husband and or your master over. That's what he's saying. Paul, conversely, in Ephesians, is not making a cultural accommodation to the day. Paul, rather, is holding up a standard for Christian marriage and relationship. Okay, hang with me. Genesis 3.16 that we just read is after the fall, comes after the fall of man. This is not God's ideal. Uh, In the Hebrew, this is not a command. This is a declaration. So when when we study the Bible, we talk about Scripture being descriptive or prescriptive, okay? So what that means, prescriptive means Scripture is saying, Here's a prescription. This is what you're supposed to do. This is a direction you take. When it's descriptive, it's not telling you what you're supposed to do. It's describing the way things are. And this is descriptive. It's describing some of the results of sin entering into the world and the fall of man. This is not how it ought to be. He's simply saying how it's going to be. And those are two very different things, okay? Paul is writing in Ephesians here, I believe, a very kingdom of God-oriented text. He's moving towards God's original purpose. In the kingdom of God, we are, we, are, we are moving towards all the time when we advance the kingdom, God's ultimate purpose in life, which is the renewal of all things and the restoration of things as they were before the fall. And he's moving towards that. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve walked in unity, walked in mutual submission. There was no strife in their relationship. They had mutual respect, mutual admiration for one another. They deferred to one another. I could just see, you know, what do you want to do? I don't care. What do you want to do? No, I want to do what you want to do. No, let's do what you want to do. I mean, that's the way it was. It was a relationship. Their relationship at that time reflected the image of God. So we're created in the image of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are together as one. There's no power struggle between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? There's no power struggle. There's no jockeying for position. There's there's no one of them taking precedence over the other two. Uh, they, They work in complete and perfect unity together, although they have very different roles. And that's the way a marriage relationship is supposed to be. 
working together toward a common purpose in perfect unity, yet with different roles. I don't know if you've noticed this. Anybody? Men and women are different. Anybody know that? Yes, they are. That's not bad. That's good. They bring different strengths and, 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 and different roles, really, different capacities into the marriage. It's not that one is necessarily greater than the other. They're just different. So back to our text. It says here in the early part of this, man is the head of the woman as Christ is the head of the church. What does that mean? That man is the head of the woman as Christ is the head of the church. I want to look at yet another passage. And I, I know this is a little technical today, but really, hang with me. You're going to like this in the end, most of you. <laughs> I don't know if I can do it. I can do it. First Corinthians. Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is a man, and the head of Christ is God. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And I don't know what that means. I'm just being honest here. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. What this is saying is that man is the head. Essentially, the word means source. He came first. You remember that whole rib thing? So the, the, the man was born first, and then the woman was taken out of the man. So the man was the origin or source of the woman. And in in, in that same way, Paul's saying that's what it means to be the head. It's not necessarily a position of power. It's just an order of creation. And this is, this is a timeless truth. If you go back to Genesis, man was created first, and then woman came out of man. And that's what it means to be the head. Again, radically countercultural in the first century because it's not really about who's the boss or who obeys who, it's really just about who came first, who is the source or the origin. Okay, back to Ephesians. Three final considerations. <laughs> okay, most people believe that, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, I thought about it. Most people believe that Women are supposed to submit to men more than men are supposed to submit to women. And they come up with that because it's simple. You do the math. It says once, submit to each other, but three times women submit to men. So three to one, we win, right? Simple. Do the math. Here's a fun fact. Fun fact. No one, I don't think anyone here knows this. The Greek word, hupostasso, submit, in verse 21, is not used again in the text in verses 22 through 24. It's not there. It is, it's been inserted by translators because it's implied. 
The verses really do talk about the relationship between the husband and the wife, but literally in the Greek, they read something like, uh, wives to your husbands as to the Lord, and then in 24, wives to your husbands in everything. That's what it says. The word submit is not there. And you don't have to take my word on that. You can whip out your handy-dandy little Greek interlinear and look it up. I'm telling you, it's not there. The word is not there. Submission is on all of us. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a guiding ethical standard for a Christian relationship. Okay, second consideration. So first one is that the word submit is actually not in the text. Second consideration is that throughout the New Testament, the concept of headship has nothing to do with being the boss. Okay? And I believe that it's at this point that we, by and large, and I don't mean you and I, I mean we as in uh, modern and postmodern Western culture, have made a grave error here and done something that should never, ever be done. And instead of extracting meaning from the text, I believe that we have infused culture into the text and we read it through our own cultural context. I'm just so... It's the mustache? I don't think so. <laughs> so, uh, you completely threw me off. Matthew 20. This is important. I'm going to finish this in three and a half minutes. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked him for a favor. What is it you want, he asked. She said, I love this, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking for, Jesus said. She said to them, he said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? She thinks, they think that Jesus is going to establish an earthly kingdom. He's going to be the boss. He's going to be in charge. He, she wants her two boys to be the vice president and the secretary of state. He's been, he, she's basically saying, hey, I want, I, want, I want them to have the top spots. And they said, oh, yes, yes. We can do it. And Jesus said, you will, drink, you will indeed drink from my cup. He says that here because he knows, because he's Jesus, that they also will be martyred. They don't know that, and they don't know what that means, but they think that they're going to be big shot. And uh, he said, but who sits at the right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And then the other guys heard about this. They were indignant with the brothers. Jesus called them together and he said, and here, this is the point. This is the important part. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Do you remember a few weeks ago in Ephesians when Paul said, don't be like them? Same thing here. Not so like you. Don't do that. Instead, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, biblically, authority is defined by submission. Biblically, authority is defined by becoming a servant and caring for those around you. So, men, if you want to be the head of the house, then you prefer your wife, you serve your wife, you lift her up, and you take out the stinking garbage. 
Okay? That's the way it works. Last thing, final consideration. The word head used here in Ephesians 5 for Jesus as the head of the church and the man as the head of the household is the Greek word kapel. And what that word means literally is cornerstone. And so the picture, and it's a beautiful picture really, is that the man is the cornerstone that holds the house together. He's the glue that holds the family together. That's what it means. There is another word in Greek for head of the house that means the ruler of the house. That word is used in Matthew chapter 10 when it says, The student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of the household? That word, the four-word four phrase, head of the house, is one word in Greek. It's oikodespotes. It's a different word than kapel in Ephesians. Oikodespotes is two words put together. Oikos means household. Despotes is where we get the English word despot. A despot is an authoritarian, tyrannical sort of ruler, an autocrat. Now, here's the thing. That word is used about 10 times in the New Testament. Every single time it's used, it's in reference to a landowner that has a large estate in the context of relationship with his servants and or employees. So he's the head of the house. He's the boss. He's the oikodespotes. He's the man in charge. It's never, ever one time used in the New Testament to describe a family relationship of a husband or father in a, in a family. The word kapel is always used. They are the same in English, but they're very, very different in the original Greek. It's never used to mean that. The man is to be the source of life for his family, to be like Jesus, to lay down his life for his wife, and he's to be the cornerstone that holds that family together. That's what it means to be the head of the house. Biblically, if you're the head, you defer to others. You swallow your pride. You lay down your rights. We talk a lot about our rights. Jesus says you lay down your rights on behalf of and in deference to those around you, most specifically your wife, and your family. Um, in almost every wedding I officiate, and I, somebody asked me, I think at Tuck and Zoe's wedding, how many weddings have I done? And I don't know. Over 300. In almost every one, I, I read this passage and I say to the husband, you have the harder job. Because you have to love your wife and lay down your life like Jesus did. So this text is an illustration of the upside-down kingdom of God. And it means exactly the opposite of what it has often been interpreted to mean. Men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, never force authority upon them, but to serve them and gain functional authority, not positional authority, through their service to them. Not like the Gentiles did, lording it over them. But like Jesus did, because he served his disciples, he washed their feet, and he laid down his life for them. 
And that's what it looks like to be the head of the house. Let's stand.